this talk that is about to happen, before that happened, this was already going to be very chill and informal. Like if there was ever a, a, a message that I was going to give where I was like, man, this, this belongs like as a discussion over coffee or lunch, this is it. And so if you are willing to just go there with me and pretend that we're together and literally if you, if you had a question, I'm going to, I don't think any of you are going to do this, but if you had a question that came up, there's a microphone. You can come grab it. We can pass it around. Um, I, Kevin doesn't need the microphone, but some, some of you might. Um, huh. <laughs> uh, okay. If you weren't here last week, we told you guys about our friend Mark Arima and his family. Kristen's over here and their kids are downstairs. Um, uh, Mark is the guy, the other guy that planted the church with me. He's the pastor at Valley Church with me since we started. And basically, over the last several months, God has been uh, calling them to a new thing. So Mark has just accepted a position at a church called Summit View in Battleground uh, in Vancouver, Washington. And so uh, we told you guys this last week. We basically spent a good 20 to 30 minutes just sharing the whole story with you of how that developed and how it happened at some point, I'll put that podcast up if you, want, if you didn't hear it last week and you'd like to hear that story. Um, we, uh, we'll put that up. Um, but basically, it's uh, very sad for Valley and amazing for the Arimas, and it can be both, that we're sad that Mark has, is moving on, but um, very, very uh, glad and happy that uh, the Arimas are following God's will for their life. Um, and so a couple things I just wanted to reiterate if you weren't there and won't listen to the podcast or... I just want to say again is, uh, one, I do not want Mark to leave, and the Arimas did not want to leave, but God was calling them there, and all of us agreed unanimously that that's what God was doing with them, uh, with their family, and so we call it a good thing. We say amen, and way to go, Arimas, for following um, the, the Lord's leading in your life, and also that sure sucks for Valley, <laughs> and so um, Next Sunday, so a week from today, is uh, Mark's last Sunday, the Arima's last Sunday here. And so we're going to have a big dinner celebration for them and also celebrate Valley's three-year anniversary. So uh, the first Sunday in October of 2019 was our first Sunday, and uh, first Sunday in the building. And so we're going to celebrate it just one week early because we wanted to kind of mash up three years, look at how far we've come, and also send out the Arimas with um, a bang. So I think we're going to have like a Qdoba burrito bowl dinner. It's going to be amazing. Um, and yeah, there's, some, there's probably some sign up that you're supposed to do that I probably should have been announcing right now, and I don't know where to do that. So we'll send out emails later. Don't worry about it. Um, what we're going to do now, we do it pretty, have done it pretty much every year right around this time, is some type of series about our vision as a church. Why, why do we exist? Um, and uh, in the past, what I've done is kind of broken down our vision statement. Why we exist is to be a family of missionary disciples. And I would take a week to talk about what it means that we're a family, what it means to be missionaries, and what it means to be disciples. And I might do that in the weeks to come. But what I really wanted to do was to have this, like, coffee conversation with you, basically talk, share some thoughts that I've had. Um, rather than plans and strategy, um, maybe those things will come, but I just, if I could, I would like, wish that I was just sitting down for coffee with each of you and sharing some thoughts that I have and then also asking you yours, and that microphone's there for if and when you have your thoughts. Um, so that's what 
today is going to be, and then next week we'll do the dinner thing. Mark's going to share some epic farewell address for you guys, and then we'll pick this up um, uh, in two weeks. Um, but I want to start by talking about Shia LaBeouf. Do we have any Shia LaBeouf fans? Even Steve. Thank you. I was hoping that someone was going to go all the way back. I've been a Shia LaBeouf fan since he was Louis Stevens. Um, no, but he's kind of been in the news because of his, I think, his conversion to Catholicism. Is that, can someone give me a yes, like that's what they've heard? Has anyone heard about that? Okay, so he was studying for this role in a film, I think, called Padre Pio, and he, I think, as a result of his, like, kind of getting into that character and learning what it meant, I, I believe he converted to uh, Catholicism in, in the process. And so he had this interview with, uh, I think, a bishop and was talking about his conversion and it seemed very, very legitimate. Um, and he was talking about why he likes something called the traditional Latin mass. So if you have a Catholic background, maybe you know what that is. I didn't know what it meant and maybe still don't, but I just did a little bit of reading. There's some type of, I think right now, maybe a little, a little bit more so because of Shia's conversion, there's a traditional Latin mass where the priest will read in Latin and do a, a very, very ancient and sacred mass for the people that attend it. And then there's also just the normal Catholic church service or mass that people that we would have grown up with would go to. I don't know if Salem actually has a traditional Latin mass at any of its uh, parishes. But anyways, Shia LaBeouf said he prefers the traditional Latin mass because he doesn't feel like he's being sold something. The implication that when he's at the normal kind of, I don't know what to call it, the average mass for a normal Catholic who doesn't want to be at the traditional Latin mass feels like because the priest is like, sharing jokes and they're trying to bring like acoustic guitars into their worship, things that are decidedly modern compared to the history of Catholicism, he felt like he was being sold something was the words that he used. So he preferred this kind of sacred mysticism that wasn't catering to people, but was actually just doing what the Catholic Church had historically done for a few thousand years, basically. Um, but I really resonated with what he said. Uh, you could YouTube, Google, and find the interview with that idea of not wanting to feel like you're being sold something. So um, my first years as a pastor were uh, as a high school pastor at another church in town. Um, so I did high school ministry for a long time. I loved it. I loved that church. I still love that church. I still love youth ministry. Mark is going to go be a youth pastor. We love it. It's great. So what I'm about to say was me and my problem, not the problem of that particular youth ministry or youth ministry in general. But as I reflect on my time as a, a youth pastor, I felt like I spent a lot of time and energy trying to sell our youth ministry to people. Now, don't get me wrong, there was so much amazing good things that happened in that ministry that I was a part of and I loved it. Um, we helped students learn about Jesus, decide to follow him and disciple him. We worshiped together, it was wonderful. But I spent so much of my like my working hours, like the time in the, in the middle of the week, asking questions like this. What can I do, what can we do as a youth ministry that will make it so that our students that already come want to bring their friends? And so we, that's not a, bad, a wrong question by any means, but I asked that question until I was just sick of it because I didn't know the answer. And so I was constantly trying to figure out what is going to sell? What is going to be attractional and bring and help 
kids, youth, want to come to a church service um, or to a youth, a youth ministry. So I was asking those questions all the time, scrambling for different ideas um, of what, are we, what can we do to help these people want to come or buy the thing that we're selling, so to speak. Um, and so it kind of became probably a little bit wrapped up into my identity. I mean, I spent most of my a week thinking about this youth ministry and how many kids would be a part of it and that sort of thing. Um, essentially all hoping that that church, those students, liked what I did. That I was providing some type of service or product, which is kind of a yucky word in that context, but, and I hoped that they liked it, is basically what was happening in my mind for a long time. And that was some uh, deep behavior that kind of got got some ruts in my mind when I thought about ministry, and it has certainly and significantly carried over into my pastoring here at Valley Church. Um, because uh, Mark is on his way out, and we also had a, a worship leader named Greta who was kind of part of our staff, and she, a few months ago, also got another job at a church here in town to be their worship leader, also a wonderful thing that we are sad about, too. Um, but someone, in light of that, someone recently asked me how I was feeling about the next season of Valley Church. And I said something to the effect of, if the people at our church, you guys, were content with everything being exactly as it has been, if I could just keep doing what I've been doing, keep preaching the Bible and leading worship, meeting with you guys as I can, I'd be so good to keep going. I love what I've been doing, and if nothing had to change, then I would just be like, easy, no problem. Um, but it's all the things that we are not doing as a church that make me wonder, are you happy here? I asked that question. I've never asked it that explicitly in my mind, but I realized that in all my reflection about my job and myself and this church, that's basically what I've been asking is, I hope people are happy here. I hope you like what I'm doing or what Mark and I are doing, what we're doing as a church. For a while, we had kind of a, the excuse of us being a, a new church plant. So when we were a few months in and we were kind of just doing the bare minimum, um, and maybe we still are, I was like, oh, we're, we're a new church. We're just figuring things out, no worries. And then the pandemic happened, and I thought we had a, a real excuse of doing just kind of the bare minimum. A lot of churches were barely meeting at all. And so... We had, I had these excuses, but now, in my mind, I'm like, now what? Like, that, those excuses are gone. We're three years in, and the pandemic, or at least its effects on our ability to gather and be the church together are um, gone, basically. And so um, I keep asking, now what? And I realize now that these conversations have happened completely and totally, 100%, just in my head, assuming that our church, that you guys have thoughts that, that maybe you don't have, or maybe you do, um, but it's all been happening in my head, me being afraid or anxious about what you think about our church. Um, but actually, unless we've talked recently, I don't know, because I haven't asked or you haven't told me. And it's just all made me realize I never, ever, pretty much until this month, I would never have called myself a people pleaser. But I, I think I kind of am. I think that I spend a lot of thought energy on that, and I never realized that. And so when I think about um, being on my own, so to speak, at least as a staff person here, I'm not on my own. You guys are here, and we're going to be the church together, and it's going to be wonderful. But um, it's caused me to really um, 
think and to study and read about the purpose of the church and my role as the pastor at this church and what is God's plan for his church, like with the capital C. What is, what is every church supposed to do? There are lots of things that some churches can do, but there are some things that you make the church uniquely the church, and we, I want to do those. And so I've been thinking about this, reading about it, and my brain has just been in a fog. I don't know if you guys have ever felt that way where you're like, you're trying to do some like deep thinking and you just can't. And so it's been hard to find clarity in my mind. And when I can't think clearly, it, I might just default back to my old ways of thinking. Feel that like what's happening here is I'm creating a, I want to create a program and a rhythm and a vibe that kind of pulls you in and sweeps you up into the rhythm of Valley Church. Um, hoping that you as a follower of Jesus would just be kind of swept up into the momentum. That's a word that is used so much with churches, and particularly church plants, is when you start, there's momentum, and it just kind of like starts, and it starts, and then it keeps going, and it goes, and I feel like we have never had a single ounce of momentum, maybe partly due to the pandemic, and then maybe partly due to me, and just my style, and who I am, uh, and I've felt sad about that, maybe bad even, wondering like, oh, am I the right guy for the job? Should I have started a church? All those deep questions. And then I realize I can't do that. I don't have the ability or the desire, nor do I necessarily think it's right for us as a church to just simply add things to the church calendar and become busy, just so that we have the kind of the feeling of being active and engaged. I want us to be engaged and active with each other and with our world, our community. Um, but I don't want to just strive and grasp for anything just so that we can feel like we're doing something. I want to know exactly what God has for our church. And more specifically, what I want, separate from Valley Church, just as a Jesus follower, but also as a pastor of this church, is I want to be a part of something that is undeniably something God is doing, where we can't mistake it for being us or me or Valley, but this is the work of God. I want to see God work in our midst. I want all of us, myself included, to be swept up, not into the story of Valley Church, but into the story of God in each other's lives and in our city. I want to actually pray together and ask God what he would have our church do and what he wants us to think about and to work on. And so our, our vision, Valley exists to be a family of missionary disciples who want to see God's kingdom come in Salem as it is in heaven. I don't want to change that. I, we, that's still why we are here. Um, but tonight, I just want to talk about something else. We'll get to that. But I want to talk about something, uh, a question, how do we measure success as a church? Um, and to do that, I'm going to use this uh, I don't know, there's not a way for me to talk about it that's gonna make it sound um, exciting or good to you, <laughs> but it's a, a paper that I received in seminary from a teacher, I'll tell you about it in a little bit, but the paper is called The Metrics of Ministry, and if you would like to look at it yourself, you can. If you go to valleysalem.com slash metrics, there's gonna be a PDF that you can download there and look at it, so I'm not gonna have any of this stuff on the screen, I have like... Literally, I have the papers from seminary here, and we're going to look at them together. Um, so if you want to see what I'm seeing, read what I'm reading, you can find it on your phone. Um, 
But I was given this paper, The Metrics of Ministry, by a teacher, a mentor I had in seminary. His name is Rick Boya. He's a pastor down in Southern Oregon. And so for a year, I spent one day a month with him, all day, like eight or nine hours, and a handful of other pastors from the Northwest. And we learned and discussed theology together. Um, This guy, Rick, has been a pastor for, I wanna say like 30 years. He started a church in Southern Oregon. Um, He teaches Bible and theology at a few schools and seminaries. Um, He is an absolute goldmine of wisdom. I treasure the time that I got to spend with him. And this, Metrics of Ministry, is one of those gold nuggets that he gave us. We probably just spent like an afternoon discussing it together. Um, But ever since then, literally ever since then, I have been coming back to this. It's in a folder on my computer. um, A few times a year at least, and it helps me kind of reorient my mind about what we're doing as a church. What are we doing as, particularly as a pastor, but also as a church? Um, And I've thought about, many times about sharing it with you guys. I didn't know like what the right venue would be, didn't know exactly how to do it. Sometimes I thought, ah, it would just probably be boring for a lot of people, I don't know if it would be helpful. Sometimes I thought, and it is, it's it's made for pastors. Like we, we read it in seminary for a reason, but it is just so much about why the church exists. Um, And now I just feel like it's influenced me so much. I'm thinking about the future for our church. I'm uh, attempting to be over and over again reshaped by the scriptures so that I'm I'm doing what Jesus wants us to do as a church and not just kind of what I knew at one point or the different rhythms and habits we develop along the way. And so I've come back to this over and over again. It's influenced me a lot. um, And so we're gonna look at it together and maybe you'll love it. Maybe you'll be super bored. Maybe it will challenge or correct some ways that we think about church. Um, But mostly I just hope that it might help you know me a little bit more. And to know, like, I've read too many books about, like, church mission and vision and strategy and why we do what we do. Uh, And this is the thing that I keep coming back to where I'm just like, it's a breath of fresh air that simplifies things for me when I feel overwhelmed, when I feel like things get complicated. So I've talked it up enough. You're going to love it or not. Um, If you want to follow along, you can find it on the link. I will not read everything. It's like a 12-page document or something in outline form. Uh, I'm not gonna read everything, so if you are following along, I'm gonna skip stuff. There's gonna be moments where I'm just reading what's on the page, and then maybe moments where I might stop reading and make a comment about something, but um, it is covered in scripture references and dripping with scriptural language and principles. Um, I'm not teaching through one particular passage tonight. I'm not even gonna open up to the passages that are referenced here, and you are welcome to do that if you've got your, I mean, you've got your phone with you or grab the Bible in front. If you don't wanna leave the notes that you got on your phone, you can grab the Bible and flip around, tune me out and look up like what he's referencing if you'd like to. Um, but with that said, we're gonna look at the metrics of ministry. The question that he's asking in this paper answering is how should we think about and evaluate pastoral ministry in the church? And I I really just think it's how do we evaluate uh, a church and its uh, success? And so to start, there's two realities that we should affirm as a church. I'm gonna say them both first before we dig into each of them. The presupposition of providence and the priority of spiritual formation. So those are the two things that are kind of laying the foundation for what the metrics even are in the first place. Presupposition of providence, meaning we 
presuppose, we take as fact that God is providing for his church. So point A, God is doing this, this being the church. God is doing this before we are. Leads to a few points. Uh, the Holy Spirit is actually the one building the church, not the pastors or the leaders alone. Uh, that Matthew 16, 18 passage I think is um, Peter confessing Jesus as the Messiah and Jesus saying, I will build my church. Acts 2.47, I think, is the, uh, Luke saying that the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. First um, Corinthians 3, I think, is uh, Paul planting the seeds, Apollos watering, or maybe that's the other way around, but it's the Lord who causes the growth to happen. That's the idea. The Holy Spirit is actually the one building the church. He's been doing this before, before we ever thought about being a church. God was already at work in your lives and in my lives. And so our goal is to follow his lead and not to try to use him to do what we think is important. Um, one of the sure signs, this is the sub point C on that first point, one of the sure signs that we are not connecting with this providential reality is that prayer fades to insignificance in our daily priorities or be becomes essentially ceremonial. I'd even add it becomes transitional where we just pray to like move from one part of the service to the next, which I'm totally guilty of. Um, so God is doing this before we are. The Holy Spirit is the one building his church. The second thing is just a, a, a statement to believe and affirm, which is that we have, as a church, all the personnel and tools necessary to do what the Lord wants done today. If the Lord is faithful and providential, we can trust that we will have in the tool bag right now what we need to do right now as a church. Third thing, we will have all the personnel and tools necessary to do what the Lord wants done tomorrow, tomorrow. In other words, God will provide what we need exactly when we need it. And I was just thinking about, as I was reading through this, uh, Carol Cruz is our children's ministry director. And I was thinking when Mark was in charge of our children's ministries and decided, I need to be done, we need to hand this off to someone that's gonna be able to take it to the next level. Um, and I was like, I don't know how this is gonna work. Like we, we need someone to do this. How are, we gonna, how are we gonna keep going? How are we gonna provide the place for our kids to go and learn about Jesus and not be in here so that we could listen and worship together? And God provided exactly what and who we needed exactly when we needed her, Carol, and it was wonderful. So there's the presupposition of providence and then the priority of spiritual formation. The fruit the Spirit produces is primarily in the character of the people demonstrated in their relationships rather than in the gathering of the people demonstrated in attendance figures. This rocked my world and blew my mind. Maybe it was obvious to you. And if you had asked me, I would have said, yeah, of course that's true. But deep in my soul, coming from a big church that really cared about how many people were there. This broke my brain when I realized how true and important this is. The fruit the Spirit produces is primarily in the character of the people demonstrated in their relationships rather than in the gathering of the people demonstrated in attendance figures. Attendance figures may have a place in evaluating ministry, but it's not primary in determining spiritual effectiveness. 
Organizational structure is needed and important, but not a good predictor of spiritual health or ministry fruitfulness. Uh, one of the lines here, like, uh, structure, organization, policy, and plans and strategy is helpful if it encourages and facilitates spiritual formation of both individuals and the church. But organizational structure, policies, and theological precision do not guarantee conversions or Christ-likeness. If it did, the Lord would have congratulated the Pharisees because they were masters of these things. Last thing, individual devotional life is not nearly as accurate a gauge of spiritual maturity as relational health. Love, compassion, and forgiveness in real life and close relationships, especially through times of conflict. I will pause and say, this is why, um, at least on paper and in my mind, our communities that we have at this church, I think we have five or six of them, um, I think is the most important work that we can do and that you could do as a Jesus follower if you're attempting to have this church move you along in your journey of following Jesus. Because it's so easy to start going to a church, get plugged in a little bit, and then someone, maybe the pastor or someone around you, um, says something that you don't like or you discover that I don't really like that person and they think about the world differently than me and it really bothers me that a Christian would think that way or whatever. And it's just way too easy to leave. And there is no refinement happening to your character and there's really no way for you to allow yourself to be offended or misunderstood and to process that with the Lord and with the church and say, okay, how do I move, how do I move beyond this and how can I stay committed and connected to someone who thinks differently than me. And I think the point of this, the priority of spiritual formation is that this is actually precisely what has to happen if we are going to become more like Jesus. You have to be committed to someone long enough to be wronged by them and to forgive them. Otherwise, we are like really shortcutting the process of becoming like Jesus because he uses our relationships and our life to make that happen. So, rocked my world changed how I thought about ministry significantly, the priority of spiritual formation as seen in our relationships with one another and the character that we show. Point B, letter B, the church is a living organism like a tree or a vine, but is a, it is a fruit-bearing tree, not an ornamental tree. It's about bearing fruit, not about looking pretty. Yes. <laughs> Uh, the second point, again, I'm, I'm skipping around. I'm not reading everything, but under, under letter B, much of what we hear today about church leadership is what we might call topiary pastoring. It aims at shaping the church in various ways to impress the world or other pastors or other religious observers. What better validation is there than having your church featured in a magazine? That's never gonna happen for us, just so you know. As the biggest, best, hippest, hottest, most emergent or missional. Uh, the definition of topiary is the art of training, cutting, trimming trees or shrubs into odd or ornamental shapes. Disneyland does this masterfully, lining its paths with beautiful bushes carved to resemble everything from elephants to Mickey Mouse. So when this is the model of spiritual leadership, the result seems to be churches with varied and highly marketable personas shaped for maximum cultural impressiveness, but lacking long-term discipleship impact. Number three, pruning, a fruit tree not ornamental trees in the same way, but fruit tree receives, receives pruning, not for its looks, but to increase its fruitfulness and to extend the life of the tree. Finally, nourishment, a fruit tree grows in the order of its life according to its DNA when it has what it needs. 
Same is true for us with our life in the spirit. Uh, shepherds and farmers, so to speak, have work to do. I have a job as a shepherd, a pastor of this church, but making you grow is not something that I am able to do. That is something that the Holy Spirit does inside of you. It's his life. Uh, I love these final two points on page two. Healthy sheep reproduce, healthy trees reseed. And then B, farmers are not park rangers watching nature happen. They cultivate and work the land, yet they never actually control the life of the farm. They cooperate, sometimes to the point of weariness with God's providence, but they are never in charge of the life itself. Because uh, the church is a living organism and it's about bearing fruit, the metaphor would provide that there are seasons. Um, Fruit seasons have trees, and I think that ministry and uh, church has seasons of uh, where different types of ministry are uh, effective and flourishing, and maybe sometimes where it feels like it's not. And I'll probably just say that the pandemic was not the most like fruitful, flourishing season for most churches, and maybe even that applies to kind of your own spiritual life with Jesus as well. Finally, in this analogy, mess. If you've been to a farm, uh, they're interesting and busy, but messy. They're not uh, beautiful necessarily, and healthy churches are the same. There's a, a working mess, which means there's personality clashes, failed plans, mistakes, and the like. Um, I really appreciated the last thing that he said, and so in this point number two, uh, letter C, the right metaphor is crucial to our understanding of ministry because the metaphor we live in shapes our imagination and our intuition, which are two central areas of spiritual formation. So the idea that what we're doing here, um, my like job and calling, but also also yours and your like part in here is that uh, God is the one who is doing this work. It's not me. And the work that he is attempting to do is to make you more like Jesus, to help you be spiritually formed into the image of Jesus. We're gonna see that if you stick around long enough and are close enough with people so that you are willing to, uh, on a long enough timeline, uh, sharpen each other, maybe offend each other and wound each other and then learn to forgive each other and to love each other in spite of your differences. So those two observations, the presupposition of providence and the priority of spiritual formation for, uh, prompt these three operating principles for a church. And I'm still processing these ones just as, as if I'm being honest. Um, not that I think they're not true, I just mean I'm processing them. People are more important than policies or programs. Um, the second point here, any seminarian can outline what they think the perfect church should look like and write policies that will supposedly make it all happen, this is the topiary model. But in real church life, almost nothing goes precisely according to our pastoral plan. On the other hand, policies and programs properly understood and implemented create a venue for spirit growth in the same way that a building supplies warmth, light, and shelter and ambience for family life. So people are more important than policies or programs, and B, discernment is more important than decisiveness or design. So the ability to discern how the Spirit wants us to think and feel about actual current situations facing us, especially in an individual believer's soul, but by extension also in the, the broader body, uh, it's more important, the ability to discern that, more important than appearing decisive or wise to 
leadership peers or from me uh, to you. This being the case, waiting until there is real heart and peace about major decisions is quite a decisive thing to do. The last thing, attempting the good is more important than avoiding mistakes or appearing faultless. I love this. I can kind of get um, lost and stuck in my mind of wondering like, okay, should we do this? Why should we do this? Am I sure that we should do this? When maybe we could have just done it and it would have been okay. And uh, maybe not perfect, but uh, so I'm working on that. Uh, I remember my teacher saying this thing and uh, if God couldn't use our mistakes, he'd have nothing to work with. <laughs> I find that very true and very, very uh, comforting to know that. God can and does make a habit of using um, our best intentions, which can be mistakes sometimes. In spiritual leadership and pastoral ministry, the Lord charges us with the impossible, unavoidable work of conversion, spiritual direction, and soul nourishment of his friends and family against the odds and in a hostile environment. But we can trust the Spirit to use even our mistakes as we seek to do this. Making mistakes is not a virtue, and we should avoid as many as possible, but not attempting to do the work is the biggest mistake of all and a direct violation of the Lord's command. Figuring out what I do and don't want to read. Okay, uh, we're gonna go to the actual metrics for evaluating ministry. He says, five ways to tell if we are in step with the Spirit. So the first, personal spiritual formation. Love is the primary spirit intuition for all growing Christians. The character fruit of the spirit is the indicator that the spirit is at work in a person or in a church. In almost every New Testament letter, the author exhorts the readers to live up to the life of the spirit within and among them. Most of the letters were written because the group in question was in some way not cooperating with the spirit and not living in deep love with each other. And almost all the instructions focus on relational issues that come under the heading of Christian love. Spirit life, love, and wisdom should be evident in the relationships among staff and leaders, especially what should show up spontaneously among the members of the body. This is individual but not private. I really appreciate the wording of that. The spiritual growth of the individual precedes that of the community. Individual spiritual growth and Christ-likeness always happens in community, but it must occur in the individual first for the community to experience it authentically. Focusing on the community policy to the exclusion of the personal and individual growth and grace creates Phariseeism, the outward appearance of unity and holiness laid over the inward desire for other things, which is like in that analogy of trimming plants, it's topiary. Under this uh, heading of personal spiritual formation includes a thirst for God's word as another indicator of personal spiritual growth. There may be Pharisaic motives which show themselves in pride, anger, self-sufficiency, party spirit, and so on. Nevertheless, a growing believer in Christ will have a desire to grasp the scriptures because that is how Jesus was. It is a family trait. Um, 
Three, basic spiritual disciplines should be evident among the people even though not legislated in the body. People should be learning to pray together, worship together, give, fast, and meditate on God's word. So the first metric is personal spiritual formation. I don't know, I can't make it happen. I feel like that's the point that I'm hoping uh, we are learning and I'm hoping that I will actually learn that I can't make it happen, but it is the thing that I'm looking for. Uh, we're not a huge church. I'm not distracted by large numbers of people, people that I don't know. Uh, it's the thing that I'm looking for. It's like the, the stories that I ask about when I'm asking how communities are going and it's the thing that I'm looking for. Where is the evidence that you are becoming more like Jesus? I'm not asking that to imply that you're not, but those are the things that I like celebrate and the things I like want to hear about is personal spiritual formation. The next thing, the next metric is communal spiritual maturity. Uh, there's a quote at the end of that first paragraph. A church is not a group of freelance spiritualists who gather to compare notes from time to time. It is one living organism composed of many members. This means, this is a, if you checked out, check in just for like two minutes for this part. I think it's the best. This means that the metric of health will be relational harmony and mutually exhibited between the Christians in daily life over a long period of time. This is tested often, and the presence of tests in this regard is not an indicator of overall spiritual ill health any more than catching a cold is a sign that a person is dying. But the question is, do they work through the pain of friction together? Do they show patience and persistence in Christ-like behavior? Can they forgive? It's an essential part of what it means to be a Jesus follower is that you can forgive others. Personal spiritual maturity is always demonstrated at the interpersonal level. Paul was very clear that true spiritual anointing always showed in the way one treated and related to others. It is what 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is about. I think this whole thing is worth this quote right here. It doesn't matter if you levitate during devotions in the morning. If you can't get along with other believers, somebody's not walking in the spirit. Healthy and loving connections between age groups, genders, and races where much of culture is mired in conflict. This is an indicator of communal spiritual maturity. It should show up in the way older people and younger people mix easily. Uh, men and women should love and respect each other and the gender war that happens in our world should be uh, absent in the Christian community. Same with racism in any form should be conspicuous by its absence in our church as well. This was true of the early church, which was multi-ethnic. The last thing in under communal spiritual maturity is authentic relational church discipline a sort of grassroots ability of brothers and sisters to confront and correct each other in healthy ways, which we just learned about in Matthew 18. So this is not just having a church discipline policy. Writing pure policy is not the same as experiencing healthy Holy Spirit life and community. A church may have precious little written down and experience a rich and full koinonia is the New Testament word for fellowship. Um, a rich and full fellowship while another church has a doctoral level dissertation on church purity and discipline and no healthy Christian fellowship or the ability to work through trauma or injury. 
The third metric, spontaneous missional initiative. Kingdom priorities in action without intense pre-programming by church leadership. This, is, this does not mean we never use programs to encourage or shape the desires of Christians to spread the kingdom, but the desire, uncoerced and unprogrammed, is the sign of health to look for. When Christians are impressed with and growing in the Lord as the first Christians were, they should sense the Spirit's direction to impact their private and public worlds. When people respond with ideas of how to bear witness of Christ's lordship in their working world, represent him in public and private venues, serve their community as a mission field, or cross cultural boundaries with the gospel, this indicates that they are growing spiritually and that the ministry is succeeding. So we've got personal spiritual formation, communal spiritual maturity, spontaneous missional initiative. The fourth one, internal leadership emergence. Uh, the sign of health for our church would be that uh, men and women are uh, identified and developed and raised in your spiritual formation process as leaders in this church. And I, I don't mean just serving in some capacity, which uh, we have all sorts of needs and we are going to have even more very, very shortly. Um, but I'm talking about actual, like the development of the desire to shepherd people and to um, help people in their journey with Jesus. And the last one, natural organic growth. This is the last metric because it happens only in conjunction with the other four. The goal is not the speed or the size of organic growth. The goal is healthy, God-ordained development appropriate to the life of the organism. Where the fruit of the Spirit is flourishing in persons and groups and spontaneous missional activity takes place, there will be fresh conversions, baptisms, and all things being equal, increased numbers. But bigness is a sign of health only when the size is appropriate to the creature. Being supersized may not be a sign of blessing. We don't have a problem there. A gestation of 11 months and a birth weight of 100 or so pounds are good for a foal, but not a human newborn. I thought that was funny too. <laughs> Furthermore, slow, steady growth may be a better sign of health than explosive expansion. The exception that we know about is when like 3,000 people decided to follow Jesus in the book of Acts. But that was a unique moment in the history of the church. So we do not use the size of gatherings as a primary metric of our success in serving the Lord. Um, he didn't use this metric, and we shouldn't either. Uh, less is more when it comes to, it can be true when it comes to many Christian gatherings. Instead, I want to ask, has anybody come and encountered Christ himself through the Christians they met here? This, of course, implies that they have heard the Lord's voice and are responding to him. We're not just a restaurant offering a good dining experience. On the other hand, the overall experience of being among Christians should tell a person what grace is. This means that from the first contact, a parking attendant or a phone answerer, to the pulpit work, there must be demonstrable grace and Christocentric emphasis. Did these people hear about the cross and the lordship of Christ here? Did they experience love here? Did they experience or observe worship among people who truly know the Lord? Did they hear from God's word in this place? Did they feel that this place has sacred significance? 
If they did, my guess is that they will be back and there will be some organic conversion growth. So personal spiritual formation, communal spiritual maturity, spontaneous missional initiative, internal leadership emergence, and natural organic growth. Those are the things um, that kind of rocked my world when I, when I read them. I'm gonna pause. I'm probably not gonna go through the rest of this ever. If you want to read it, you should go for it. It's all, the rest of it's very good. Um, but these points um, have helped provide a healthy thing for me to look for and goals for me as a pastor when I think about what am I doing here, especially with Mark and his family taking off and I feel like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna be on my own. Like It's causing me to kind of center a little bit and to rethink or just think clearly about what we're doing here. And so those are the things that uh, I want to look for and then also like organize what does or doesn't happen at our church based around those things. Um, I think I've thought for a while because um, I think because our church uh, started small and has stayed small, at first it bothered me. I thought, I thought church plants just got like 200 people just for starting. Like, wasn't that a thing that the Lord just gives churches? Um, he didn't, and it doesn't, and that's not how it works. Um, and at first it bothered me, and then sometimes I thought like, oh, we're just gonna make it grow. What can I do to make it grow? And then I'm like, can't do that. That doesn't work, especially in a pandemic. Um, and then I've realized, I don't think I've been ready. I still don't think I'm ready for this church to be like one person larger than it is because I've grown to seriously care about each of you and some of you have hadn't, I haven't even had the chance to like talk to or ask you about your journey with Jesus and talk to you um, and so I feel very like um, grounded that this is exactly the church that the Lord wants us to have right now. Uh, and I promise if there's people that come here that don't know Jesus, I'll preach the gospel and we'd love to add them in that natural organic growth that I think will be slow for us, but I'm okay with that and I hope you are too. Um, I wanna circle back to this one, one thing I mentioned earlier in that paper was um, uh, the idea that when a church um, forgets that the Lord is the one doing the work here, uh, prayer, kind of like just kind of fades into the back or becomes a thing that we do to transition from one thing to the next. I happen to be needing to transition from one thing to the next right now. Yeah, but um, <laughs> I would love it if you guys would pray with each other. So not as like a chance for me to go up to the piano, but that you would actually turn around to those around you. I mean, we'll take like, five to 10 minutes to do this and then just ask if there's anything in particular that you can pray for and it's okay if you say no and you can still pray for each other um, but learn each other's names if you don't know each other and take a few minutes and would you guys pray with and for your church family